This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Hey gang, this podcast is brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. This past weekend, the weather was killer and I actually had a chance to get out and do a little barbecuing, fired up the smoker, made some ribs and some brisket. And you might be wondering what any of this has to do with coffee. Uh, I actually took Skull Brew Coffee, the backcountry roast, and created a rub for both the briskets, uh, both the brisket and the ribs, and then actually took it to the next level and used the coffee to create a barbecue sauce from scratch, which was awesome. If you're interested in this recipe or and seeing how this kind of turned out, you can head over to the Skull Brew Coffee Instagram page, and I'm going to post the recipe for both of these things along with a few pictures of the uh, of the output of these endeavors. If you're wondering how you might be able to get your hands on some of this Skull Brew Coffee, either for drinking or for uh, barbecuing, you can head over to SkullBrewCoffee.com. And if you're not aware already, one of the things that we do is we donate 10% of our profits back to help protect uh, conservation or protect wild places and support conservation. So anytime you make a purchase with us, you're working toward helping uh, helping to support conservation. So visit SkullBrewCoffee.com and pledge your support of conservation today. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 115. Today I'm joined by Brian Broderick of Day 6 Gear for part one of our two-part discussion. We're talking mature bucks, and the art of gar holding. So stay tuned. All right, all right. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you all are doing well out there. Hope that the uh, that spring has finally sprung upon everyone out there listening. Finally hit here in Pennsylvania with some really great weather this past weekend. Um, actually, we had some nice weather just during the course of the week, too. It was nice the beginning part of the week, then the weather got kind of crappy again. Then I think we've kind of made it through the uh, – uh, I think we're actually in the clear now as far as uh, good weather is concerned. I had a pretty good week last week. Um, if you listened to an earlier podcast with John and I, I know we were talking about some stuff that was going on with our, our, uh, our, our work life and so forth, and for me – 
I actually am transitioning to a new a new gig, which is exciting. Uh, but with that, I was able to actually have this past week off to just kind of relax, reset before I jump into a new a new gig and a new environment. So I took full advantage of that and had a chance to get out and do a little bit of scouting and and, and pretty pumped um, with what I had a chance to with what I what I'd seen. So I think I found a place that's going to be pretty decent or could be decent for um, for hunting some turkeys. Uh, which is cool, but more importantly, I found some killer sign um, uh, as far as for you know planning for some from additional deer hunts, and these are new to me public land properties, so not places I've hunted in the past. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm now you know I guess uh, increasing the number of parcels that I have to hunt uh, in and around me. Uh, which is great because, uh, you know, in the past, in the, in the eastern part of the state where I live, I was somewhat limited in the number of properties that I had and, you know, of course, not wanting to burn them out and, and so forth. So I had to kind of really pick and choose which days I was going to hunt. Um, but I'm not going to jump too much into the details. John and I will do a catch up here at some point to hear what's going on with him. He's had some he's already been turkey hunting. He was in he was in Florida and we'll get a we'll get an update from him on that. We'll talk a little bit more in depth about about these types of things. Uh, other than that, you know, this past weekend, the weather was killer. So, uh, you know, I, I got a chance to do a little barbecue and spent today, actually, uh, the, again, another really nice day. I actually just got home from the archery range and was shooting with our, our good buddy, bow hunting fiend, Greg, uh, Greg Litzinger. Uh, he and I met up this morning uh, early to uh, go to the archery club that I, that I like to shoot at. Um, I think we shot 40, 3 D targets, just kind of spent the morning hanging out together. Well, I think we started probably around nine o'clock and shot till just probably a little bit after noon. Uh, but it was nice because, you know, I, I know I'd mentioned it in a previous podcast that I had switched over to a, a thumb, you know, a Carter thumb release, um, you know, and I'm shooting it with, shooting it with the, I guess the approach or, you know, or the, the technique of back tension, uh, which is new for me because I had shot a, a finger release for, for years, um, and you know, not that I was, uh, you know, I, I'm sure my form wasn't the greatest, you know, I'd work with Greg a lot on, on, on that when we would shoot together and, uh, I would try my hardest not to punch the trigger and stuff like that. And I'd gotten better over, over, over time at that. Uh, but I wanted to go to the next level to try to get that, you know, to break that habit and just shoot more confidently and more consistently, more importantly. Um, and so I ended up, I know I'd mentioned that in an earlier podcast this past year, whenever we were at Harrisburg for, uh, the Great American Outdoor Show, I actually ended up stopping by a vendor and picking up one of those Carter releases. And I basically spent from, you know, what, whenever that show is, February, um, in my basement shooting at like 15 yards in my basement at a, at a, at a target and just kind of going through the motion and getting my shot sequence together and just trying to get comfortable with how it feels because it's it's a pretty big departure um, from what I was shooting, you know, the release I was shooting previously. And this was really the first opportunity I had to go out and really start to stretch out my distances a little bit. I did shoot outside of my house. I would shoot, you know, out to like 20, 25 yards. I really wasn't confident to shoot much further than that, um, only because I was just, you know, had a little bit of fear in the back of my mind that I was going to, you know, shank something or whatever and end up sending an arrow into the, the neighbor's yard or whatever. And wanted to try to avoid that, of course. Um, so I was really looking forward to get it, getting out into, um, to go into the action to the range where I could really start to stretch some stuff out and see how I'm shooting essentially. And so I was pleasantly surprised where, um, you know, I still need to work on my gapping. You know, that's something that I need to continue to brush up on just because, you know, as I'm hovering now, you know, and you're shooting with back tension, it's things are still a process for me. So I've not gotten to the point that my shot you know, the actual release becomes, you know, the, 
the the thing that just kind of happens, you know, whenever I kind of set my set my target, um, there's still, you know, I, I feel like I'm still doing a lot of thinking. So the plan is really just to kind of continue to work on my shot and get it to the point to where I'm able to control my shot. Well, um, I will say this, that, you know, even whenever I was missing targets, actually, I'll, I'll say this first. I, I, I pinwheeled more targets today than I can remember, uh, you know, pinwheeling in, in, in one session. Um, so that was kind of a big, you know, a, a, a big thing for me to, to be able to do that. Um, and it wasn't like I was a terrible shot before, but the thing that I, you know, that Greg actually commented on while we were shooting, it was even when I was missing a target, right? So maybe I was missing slightly high, maybe I was in the 10 ring or maybe I was just outside the 10 ring. Um, and I don't do a lot of spot shooting or I should say 3d shooting. I mainly shoot for, um, ethical kills, um, you know, but whenever I'm shooting at the range, it's nice to kind of be able to tell, you know, if I'm off a little bit or whatever, if I'm off, am I off left? Am I off right? Am I off high? Am I off low? Um, so it's a little easier to tell whenever you're shooting for at specific, you know, uh, at specific points on, on a, on a target. But what Greg noticed and, and I noticed as we were going was that even if I was missing a little bit high, say I was like two inches high on a target or whatever, and I would shoot three arrows, all three arrows would be in the same group. And so I wasn't having those random flyers that, you know, all of a sudden I'm like, wow, that, you know, two of these are grouped really nicely together. Then one of them is six inches to the right. I wasn't getting any of that or two of them were high. And then all of a sudden one was like three inches low or five inches low or whatever. I was putting them all in the same, in the same area, um, which just told me that I'm being, I'm a more consistent archer now than I was in the past. Uh, so the next thing I need to really work on is then getting my gaps back. I had my gaps down really well, um, last year. Cause what I like to hunt with is a single pin. And I like to set it at 25 yards because most of the places I set up in, I'm not going to really probably shoot much further than that just because of how, how thick it is. But I do like to be comfortable out to about 37 yards. So second half of the day or the second set of targets, I guess, the, the second 20, I started shooting with just a 25-yard pin. As long as it was no further than um, you know 35, 37 yards, I would shoot with that 25-yard pin and was starting to work on gapping. Now, my gapping wasn't as good as I would like it to be. Uh, but that will all come back in time today. It was just really about building confidence in, in my shot, in my shot sequence and in trusting the release. Um, and then from there, once, you know, I feel really comfortable with that, I can go ahead and start working on gapping because then everything should start to, the shot sequence should, uh, should start to come together. But that's enough about uh, what I have going on in terms of uh, my archery shooting. I hope everyone out there is getting a chance to get some of this done because it's you know this is a great time of year to work on those small little details that can obviously pay big dividends when we get to when we get the hunting season. But I'm not going to belabor this upfront any uh, or, or much longer here. We have a great show in store. Uh, Brian Broderick of Day Six Gear is on. He's a buddy of mine. I of course shoot Day Six Arrows. Brian is a is a guy who has done all kinds of hunts. I mean. It's, you know, it's, I'm a little envious in terms of the, the, the types of critters he's had a chance to chase. Um, and with, and with regular success too, um, Brian's a cool, uh, cool story, especially with how he's kind of putting day six together and why that company's kind of coming together. And then some of the folks that are involved with that, um, this first part, part number one, we're really going to kind of talk about just hunting and hunting in general, how Brian got started, uh, his intro to hunting. We talk a little bit about, you know, the, the mature deer he's chasing Alabama, how they're a little bit different, uh, to hunt than some of the critters he's hunted or some of the deer he's hunted in, in, in other places. And as I mentioned, the art of gar holing is one of the, one of his strategic imperatives, which sets him apart from other hunters. You have to have to listen through to, uh, to see what he means by that. We have a second part of this podcast that'll be coming out, uh, next week. I'll put it out where we dive more into specifically, you know, uh, archery. We dive more into 
to day six. Uh, we dive into a few things that are going to be upcoming from day six that are in the hopper as far as new products are concerned and where they're headed overall as a business and, and what their goal is and what they're trying to do for the hunting community. So stay tuned for part two next week. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get Brian on. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today, uh, the guest that I have on is a is a gentleman that I actually, actually, I met him through uh, Kevin Vistason of the Deer Hunter Podcast. He introduced me to, to this fella, um, and we got a chance to, to talk a little bit. He's making some some killer arrows. He's a, a, a guy who's relatively well-known in, in, in the hunting world. He's been getting after it a long time and has, has some buddies who I'm sure all of you... Uh, guys out there listening uh listening know of but uh i'm talking to none other than brian broderick from day six gear how you doing man good how about you bud i'm doing all right i know we were talking i'm, I'm, I'm running on i'm running on black coffee and caffeine this morning haven't had any had haven't had any food yet so we're uh we'll, we'll, hopefully we don't pass out here from uh from lack of caloric intake this morning but we'll we'll power through how about you well it's not going to be any we i'm i'm eating uh bacon eggs and biscuits right now so i'm white tail fit brother <laughs> white tail fit i love it man i love it so uh let's, before we get started here man i know you and i've had a chance to talk a little bit you know back and forth via text and we've had a couple phone calls just kind of chatting and stuff like that but for the folks that are out there listening that might not know you know who you are where you're from those types of things uh just give me a little bit of background uh, you know about you what you do for a living and, and what you do specifically in the white tail world yeah man um so I was uh, born and raised in um, Alabama uh, or L.A., lower Alabama. Right. Um, so um, worked uh, at a, a hunting and fishing store that was real popular in the South uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, as I was in uh, high school and college. And uh, always wanted to, you know, uh, basically hunt for a living, however I could figure that out. <laughs> so. <laughs> But I realized working in that store that, you know, the guys that were getting to do it all were the guys that, you know, owned their own businesses and, uh, made a, you know, made a good income and had a little, uh, bit of, uh, disposable income so they could go do the things they wanted to do. And I knew working, you know, basically in the store or something like that wasn't going to work. So I got in the construction industry. I've been doing that for 25 years, um, I've run my own business for 20 of that 25 and, um, it's, uh, allowed me the, you know, the opportunity to have, uh, to be able to set my own hours and set my own time and be able to try to take off as much as I could and hunt as much as I could and afforded me a, a you know, good enough income that, you know, I could make sure my family was comfortable and then, you know, have some, a little extra left over to go on some hunts and do some adventures. So, that's what I've done, but you know, my, uh, uh, golly, I, I, I love what I do. I love what I've done the last 25 years, but I always have wanted to, you know, be, uh, basically in the hunting industry, um, for a living or at least be able to call hunting, uh, you know, my, my, my job, because that's really what I'm passionate about. So I started day six last year uh in the hopes of you know slowly growing a, a small business that could kind of be a uh a retirement business if you will for me to where i could uh be in the business you know do hunting for a living help other people uh talk about hunting instead of talking about you know um 
tile choices and paint colors. <laughs> so, right, right. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that's kind of how I uh, ended up, you know, where I am now, full circle, you know, basically 25, 30 years later. Right. And it's it's funny because a lot of these guys, you know, are guys and girls that I've, I've had, a, had a chance to talk to through the podcast that get to hunt a lot, you know, or, or work in the outdoor industry even. Um, you know, I don't think people realize how many folks that is kind of like a part-time passion project that they have, like growing it to something else. Like there's always a, a quote-unquote real job that people usually have um, that are kind of supporting those other those other endeavors. So, you know, the folks who are working in the outdoor industry, man, are grinders. Um, there's no other way to do it, really. Um, you know, because it just, um, there's a lot of hours involved, I guess is the, is the easiest way to say it, you know. But, uh, you know, let, I want to back up for just a quick second. And I know, you know, growing up in the South, and you worked at the at the outdoor uh, shop, you know, earlier, um, you know, high school, mm-hmm. college and stuff like that. But what was your introduction to hunting like? Like, how, did you come from a hunting family? Was that something that was big with, you know, with with your family overall? Or did, did an uncle get you into it? Or so how did you kind of get into hunting? Oh, my grandfather. Oh, okay. My grandfather was a hunter. And um, let me back up. My, my grandfather, but, but I was very fortunate. I had two incredible uh, father figures in my life, my, my dad and my grandfather. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a shame, but it's, it's, it's not always the case that young men growing up have good father figures and role models. Yeah. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to have two um, just incredible men. Uh, men of integrity, hard, hard work ethic, um, good disposition, just good people, you know, mm-hmm. and my dad, uh, had no interest in, uh, hunting. Uh, his interests were like motocross, uh, racing, you know, race cars, stuff like that. Right. Uh, he was also, also athletic. He played tennis. He was a wrestler things, you know, so kind of a good balance. My grandfather, um, uh, was an athletic guy too, but his passion was hunting and fishing. Okay. So as a young man, I got exposed to some of the greatest, you know, coolest crap ever. So, right. I mean, you know, racing motocross and race cars and, and then getting to hunt and fish with my granddad. I mean, it was just this, you know, constant, um, uh, activities and, and just fun stuff to do. And so, but my grandfather, I, I said, you know, he was a hunter, but my grandfather loved to hunt. Mm-hmm. And I've learned uh, over the last, I'm 46 years old, I've learned over the last 30 years um, as a semi-adult that... Uh, <laughs> I like how you threw that in your semi-adult. <laughs> I hadn't quite, yeah, I hadn't quite made it yet. But, yeah. um, um, but I've learned that there's people that love to hunt and there's hunters and there's a very distinct difference. Mm. And my grandfather was a guy that loved to hunt, but he was probably, I'd say in my life of all the thousands of hunters I've met, my grandfather was probably top two or three of the possibly the worst hunters I've ever seen. (laughs) Um, He loved it so much. He just was not good at it. Right. And it just didn't, it didn't click with him. So for me, it just clicked. It was a natural thing. So you know, by the time I was 12 or 13, you know, I was the guy killing the, the bigger deer in camp every year and, um, you know, killing more, more deer than all the old guys. And, 
And uh, it was really funny because they thought it was like they had no animosity, no jealousy. They thought it was hilarious right? Um, that the kid was, was beating them every year, basically. But um, but it was great because it, it gave me um, a chance to get exposed uh, to hunting. But it also afforded me the opportunity to learn on my own mm-hmm. uh, and teach myself. Um, and that, to me, is the best way to forge an incredible foundation, which is the single most important thing of being a consistent, successful hunter is having a great foundation. Um, you know, if I would have had someone uh, that was a advanced hunter, very skillful, had a great skill set, and just basically showed me everything, and I didn't have to learn it the hard way, you know, I feel like I'd be handicapped. Mm-hmm. No, and I, I feel I feel like that's where a lot of people are right now. No, I I agree with you. It's funny we had. I think it was John and I, uh, the guy who typically co-hosts the show with me. He, we had talked about that because he didn't come from a, a, a typically hunting hunting family either, and he didn't start hunting until much later in his life. He was a retired uh, narcotics cop, undercover cop, and you know, hunting was like a relief for him or a release. Is kind of how he got into hunting, and um, a couple other guys I know. I'll just take one guy, you know, in particular that I hunt with around here. He's a younger fellow, my friend Wilson. You know, he didn't come from a hunting family. He kind of picked it up later in life. He's still a younger, younger fella, but he didn't really have anyone that was showing him the ropes and a lot of stuff. He just kind of had to pick up on his own for the most part. And, you know, he'll listen to podcasts, this one and others, and we'll talk hunting and stuff like that. And he'll pick up little tidbits from, you know, guys that I talk to or maybe something I picked up along the way. And he is probably one of the quickest studies that I've ever met in my life where he can literally take something that he's heard or has seen. And then he goes to the woods and immediately immediately applies it, and then has sex or has success using it almost immediately. Um, and I feel like I feel like you, you know, are, are pretty correct in what you're saying because I grew up in a hunting family where hunting was what I started doing from the time I was 12. My dad was a pretty big hunter, and he's a pretty you know decent hunter in his in his own right. You know, mainly with with guns. It wasn't necessarily archery, but his woodsmanship was pretty good, and that's how I kind of learned how to hunt. And so it became one of those things where. A lot of my time, a field was spent with him growing up as a kid, so there wasn't a ton of time that I was using on my own, figuring it out on my own. Whereas if I look at my friend Wilson, you know, he adapts quickly because he doesn't know any different, right? I adapt slowly because I have all these preconceived ideas of how things should work, maybe to a degree. So I think you hit the nail on the head with that. Well, the thing is, is that one of the things you just brought up is his, um, his, ability to absorb information quickly and process it. Mm-hmm. And so through my learning curve, you got to realize that the internet wasn't there. Right. Yeah. Podcasts weren't there. The only thing that you could get were magazines and read articles. And I, I just consume these things. And with regards to whitetails, <clears throat> I'm not trying to discredit anybody or any of the old famous guys, but with regards to whitetails, the things that I read, read in these multiple publications that I just consumed constantly, they were not applicable to my location. Yeah. So it, if you look at all the whitetail podcasts out there, if there's 20 whitetail podcasts, 15 of you guys are in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at all the famous uh, 
when I say Midwest, I mean, you know, basically like, you know, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, West to Iowa, that area, you know? Right, yeah. Right. So, the heartland area. So, where I, where I live and where I grew up, <clears throat> these deer don't play by the same rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, none of this stuff applied. And so, it was very frustrating. Um, and if you, you know, look at all the really famous whitetail guys, they're all in that same area. They're in, you know, basically uh, Kentucky, Illinois, Missouri, mm-hmm. Kansas, um, Iowa, that zone. Yep. Well, it's it's because that hunting out there. Let me see how to word this correctly without pissing everybody off. <laughs> <laughs> that hunting out there is more conducive to success than other areas of the country. Yeah. I mean, it's a target. It's a, that was, that was good. (laughs) The way I like to frame it is it's a target rich environment, right? It's like, it's, you have a lot more, you know, uh, suitable targets than you would in a place like, you know, where I live in the Eastern part of Pennsylvania, which is heavy pressure. Um, you know, high hunter population, of course, uh, the, Oh, it, the deer caliber just, you know, you can find pockets of good deer, but they're not running rampant everywhere. You know what I mean? So it's just, you know, it's just you have there's more opportunities. And I think most guys, you know, at least the you know my buddies that I talk to that live in those areas, it's like they'll be the first to say, like, yeah, you know, we live in a target rich environment. Of course, you know, that's, you know, it's a lot easier to find a 170 inch deer when there's 170 inch deer to be found, you know, um, in some well, states, it's just the, not the case. Yeah, well, it's, and it's not just that it's. um those deer are different uh, in that area, in those areas. They're different. They, they actually rut during daylight hours. Right. Um, they spend a lot more time on their feet in daylight hours. Um, I, I'm convinced that those deer can read. Um, <laughs> because they've obviously read all of these articles in these hunting magazines because right. they do what they say, the guys in the articles, do. You know, they, right. they do what they, what you read about. I mean, if you grunt and snort, wheeze and rattle, they actually respond positively to it. Mm-hmm. And so it's a different environment. So growing up consuming all that information and then trying to apply it to a Southern whitetail, just like beating your head against the wall. Right. But I may not be the smartest guy in the world, but you, you know, I don't have to shoot myself in the foot more than once. And I learn pretty quickly. Right. And so I started adapting to what worked and what didn't work. And it's basically just processing information and playing odds and following the stats. And mm-hmm. so that's how I've adapted my, my, my hunting for whitetails over the last, you know, 35, well, 30 years. Um, and it's basically that what works, what doesn't work, what is your highest percentage uh, strategy, you know, to get within it within bow range of a of a mature deer and you know be successful, and that's what I've done. Now, when I take those same strategies from a high pressure, very difficult hunting environment like in the South, same thing it would be in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. Michigan, those areas. 
And then you go to the Midwest and you apply them and it's just a layup. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, it is just an absolute layup. And so, you know, we have a place in North central Oklahoma and South central Kansas that we've hunted for 15 years. And, um, you know, when I go out there, it is almost a vacation from hunting for me. <laughs> it's almost like taking, you know, taking a week off. Right. And, and, that, and that's the honest truth. You yeah. know, it's just a different thing. There's, there's not a lot of stress in, in there. So, yeah, so I, I want to ask you, you know, so I want to talk about your home, your home state here, because it's just a little bit different than the Midwest and a little bit more challenging. So do you typically, would you classify yourself as a aggressive hunter or non-aggressive hunter? Where do you kind of fall in that continuum? Non-aggressive. Okay. Non-aggressive. The, uh, so were your, are your setups, are you, are you, are you trying to focus on like, if you know there's a mature buck somewhere, are you going to try to get close to his bedding? Or are you going to try to work funnels that might be to and from food? Like what's your, what's your approach to that? Uh, what I do is my number one strategy is restraint. Hmm. Um, I do not go anywhere near that deer until the conditions are absolutely perfect. And there's all of these little boxes you've got to check. And if one of those boxes is to check, I don't go anywhere near him. When I say I don't go anywhere near him, I don't go anywhere near that area at all. Okay. I'm not in the running cameras. I'm not doing anything. Hmm. Once I've identified where he is and a ballpark idea of what he's doing, I will not go in there and even attempt to hunt him unless it's, everything is just perfect. And what I try to do is, is I try to kill that deer, I would say, within three or 400 yards of where he's bedding. Okay. And that would be, that would be max. Okay. Um, the, two, the two bucks that I killed this year, um, I would say I was within 100 yards of their bedding area um, with both of them. Okay. So, uh, it, it, the thing with these Southern deer is, is that you can't, you can't just keep going into the area where you know that deer is and hunting and hoping to get lucky mm-hmm. because these guys have, these, these deer have PhDs and once they get you once, they're not going to mess up. And even when the rut kicks in, there's a lot more movement, but these big deer are still big deer and they're going to rut but they're just going to rut pretty much at dark. Right. So you've basically got to figure out the best strategy to, uh, to pick him up as soon as he gets up and starts to walk out, you know, in the evening or you catch him, you know, in the first 30 minutes to an hour before he goes and lays down both the big deer I killed this year. Uh, I shot before six forty five. Hmm. Okay. So what do you, what was it <clears throat> going back to what you were saying, you know, how a lot of the stuff that you were picking up, you were learning kind of on, on your own and it kind of helped build that solid foundation from which to kind of, you know, spring from in terms of, you know, hunting mature deer, you know, what was the, I guess the one thing, if you had to like narrow it down to one reason why you've learned to be successful in that kind of environment, what would that one thing be? Do you think? Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, The clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. 
At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Um, let's see. Well, I think the, the number one key to my success over the years has been the uh, art of uh, gar holing. The art of uh, what you know was that? The art of the gar hole. I'm not familiar with this term. <laughs> <laughs> so in the South, if you want a good piece of hunting property, it's expensive. Right. And you, you almost can't hunt public land. Um, and uh, so you have to get in a hunting club or a lease and you have to split it with, you know, five, six, 10, eight, 20 other people, depending on the size of the property and the amount, you know? Right. So not only are you trying to match with, with a mature whitetail that is at the highest level of survival, um, you also have to do that and manage that around the other members in your camp. Right. So it almost makes it impossible. So the only way to leave a deer alone, you can control your actions, but you can't control the actions to others. Mm -hmm. So unless you steer them in a direction, um, away from that deer, which is gar holing. Right. Okay. <laughs> so let's say that I go in an area and, and, uh, and, and hunt and don't see too terribly much. And these guys, you know, want to know where you are. Well, I'm always very elusive about where I've hunted over the years, especially mm -hmm. when I hunted with big groups, mm -hmm. but I would leave little subtle. It, I, I would leave like intentional mistakes. Right. I, I would mess up to where they think that I messed up. And, uh, I, I would, I would do something where they would think I had messed up and let them know where I was. Right. Like, like, um, I, I don't know, but I, you know, always leave these little hints to where they think they were. And then as soon as you're gone, they're literally racing over to where you were, because if you consistently kill big deer every year, uh, people are always trying to figure out what you're doing. Right. So gar holing guys is making sure that, that you have the other guys going away from that deer. Right. So you're sending them to a gar hole, or to a gar hole where they don't have a chance in hell of killing anything. <laughs> uh, I love that and term, so, man. I'm going to start using it. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, over the years, you know, as I've gotten older and, my business has grown and I've, you know, been able to afford better things, you know, or more, you know, more expensive places. Mm -hmm. I've been able to reduce the numbers of people, you know, that you have to work around. Right. So now where I was in my twenties and I was poor <laughs> <laughs> and using, you know, like 20% of my yearly income for a hunting camp right. priorities. Right. Yep. I was having to work around 15 or 20 guys. Now I have to work around four guys. Right. 
though it's a lot easier. So yeah. um, I don't have to gar holes aggressively as I used to, but that is the key to success is keeping the other hunters off of the deer that you're trying to kill. And that applies anywhere. That applies to the guys that are listening to you. I mean, everybody that's hunting somewhere, mm-hmm. they're hunting with others. And you have got to figure out, you know, how to place them like chess pieces, just like you're placing your stands. hundred percent. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, <clears throat> paramount whenever you're hunting a lot of public land is knowing, you know, where other guys are going to typically want to be set up. Right. And then you're kind of yeah. using their pressure to your advantage, um, pushing deer into a certain area where they may not think the deer are going to be. Cause if you look at the habitat, it doesn't say this is where the deer should be, but because they're hunting these specific areas, there's maybe one spot that the, that the deer can go where there isn't pressure. And the main thing they're going to try to avoid above all else is just people, right? So it's like even if the habitat isn't perfect, they'll use that imperfect habitat to make sure that they're as far away as they can possibly be from pressure. So you're right. That's right. And, and, and one of the things that I always tell guys is always say hunt ugly places. Yeah, yeah. Because guys love to go somewhere that's, beautiful it looks perfect big hardwood bottoms big draws big sagey feel i mean just they love these beautiful vistas big deer live in ugly places and you know it's going to be a bunch of blowdowns trash piles cut areas um old thick cane breaks briar thickets that's where they're going to be living and you have to be close to that so um that's one of the things that, that, that I learned a long time ago is just because if it's appealing to, to the eye to you, that may not mean, any, mean anything to a deer. Yeah. So now I will say this, that, in, you know, in the situations that we have now, the way we get to hunt now as an old, you know, an older guy is, and only having to work around four guys, I can be more, uh, um, you know, upper, you know, uh, I can be more forthright and honest with these guys and say, listen, I've got a big deer over here, but here is a deer here. Here's a deer here. And here's a deer here. If right. y'all, I'll show you where these other bucks are. Y'all can go hunt those bucks. I want to go hunt this one. And that's the way we do it now. And right. so instead of just gar them, like I used to when I was younger and meaner, <laughs> now I work as hard for them to make sure they're in an opportunity. If they have an opportunity to, at a big deer as well. And that's worked out well. And it keeps them out of, you know, what I'm trying to do work in the area. I'm trying to, you know, strategize on a big deer. So it's, it's the same premise. It's just a lot more uh, honest now. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think one of the most important things or one of the things that's most overlooked a lot of times whenever people are going to hunt with other folks is, man, you, you got to pick the right hunting partners. You know what I mean? Like that is <clears throat> no matter what, you know, it's like for me, I've gotten pretty lucky with the guys that I've traveled with to do travel hunts and stuff have been, you know, top notch dudes where it's like I would hunt with them every day of the week, you know, no matter what we're when we get back to camp or whatever, we're sharing information with each other, what we saw, where we saw it, trying to help each other get on deer, especially if we're going to vacate a particular area or whatever um it's just it's i I can't say enough for how important it is to hunt with the right people especially if you're going out of um you know out of state on a travel hunt and you're going to be with these guys for you know days on end if they're not having success and they're miserable it's like that's one of the worst things and 
to have in camp is just someone who's just not having a good time and miserable. It just brings everyone down. So it does. I mean, you know, one when I guess I was in my early to mid twenties, I had a uh, uh, I had a guy that I hunted with a lot. He was a, a traditional bow hunter like I was. We both hunted with longbows mm-hmm. and recurves, and um, we hunted together. Whitetail hunted together a lot, and we uh, traveled a lot. And the reason I hunted with him more than anything, other than enjoying his company, was is that his priorities were. Well, I'd say his priorities were as right or as screwed up as mine, however you want to view it. Right. But hunting came first. Hunting was above all else. And so, uh, you know, when I when I said, hey, I'm going to load up and head out to, you know, Idaho for two weeks, possibly three, can you go? Well, I mean, this guy would basically quit his job. We'd load our crap up and go and then just worry about the fallout when we got back. Right. So, <laughs> but the problem with hunting with him was that uh, he could not stay out of where you were hunting. Right. He could not. He could not live with the fact that you may be on a big deer. It just ate him alive. Right. And even when we would go elk hunting, um, you know, I'd find a, a, a you know a, a bull in a basin or something and start working him, and he wouldn't have success wherever he was. And then somehow or another, he would always end up right on top of me boogering me up and go, Oh, I wasn't sure where you were, you know? So, <laughs> you know, it was one of those guys that you just, he, he could not be happy in your success. And he was going, if you had a deer, he was going to move in on it. If you had a, a bull, he was going to move in on it. Right. So I kind of had to cut that tie, which, which stunk because it was somebody at a young age I could travel and go do things with. And he was always ready to go, right? which was hard to find. And so, that is super important. So when you're putting together a group of guys, especially guys like up in y'all's area, most of these, these traps you're hunting are small. Mm-hmm. So it, it's almost impossible to carve up a place where you're not messing up the other guy. So I don't know. It is, it is a very difficult situation uh, to kill a big deer in some of the areas of the country where, you know, these places are small farms and things like that with three or four guys hunting on them. I, I have a lot of respect for guys that can pull it off because it's difficult. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of, that's a lot of PA, you know, with small, you know, back forties, you know, if you will. And, you know, I think a lot of times people just will, will, will overhunt them. Of course, you know, I think one of the best things to do is just at least what I do. Um, I don't know necessarily a hundred percent, you know, the best approach, but I have a couple you know, family farms that, you know, are, are private and the one farm, there's a lot of guys who hunt it. So I typically don't even hunt that unless it's, you know, maybe early in the season before they get a chance to booger it up. Um, and then there's another piece that is about 60 acres that nobody hunts except really for me and my dad for like a handful of days. Um, and then I have a couple public land pieces. So I usually try to have a couple pieces that I'm willing to burn out that are probably public. And then I'll save the private land hunts for like when I think I'm going to have the best opportunities and have my hunts be, you know, as low impact and as minimal as possible until it's the, until it's the right time. Um, but what I usually do is I try to have a couple chunks that I can get onto. So I'm not ever burning one place out because you're right. It's just, especially in Pennsylvania, the hunting, you know, culture and heritage is is pretty strong still, um, where there's a lot of hunters. Um, so, you know, even when you're on big chunks of, of public, you're still most likely going to run into people and have to navigate around people. It's not like, 
you know, I went out and just scouted some, some public in Iowa and my, you know, the part of Iowa that this is in, my buddy lives near and, you know, he's lived there for a couple of years and he's hunted it. And I asked him how often he's seen people. And he said, you know, in three years of hunting, and he's like, I've seen one person in the parking lot one time, you know, so, um, it just, you know, where it's like, I'll drive past parking spots. Like whenever I'm going to hunt a piece of public land and just continue to drive past access points because there's cars around, you know what I mean? So, uh, big difference between, you know, some of those types of states and, you know, PA, Michigan, those types of higher pressure states. So for sure, that's one, that's definitely an art form of hunting around people. No doubt. It is. It is. And I guess what I would say is, is I've had a lot of guys reach out to me and say, um, you know, I, I've seen some of the whitetails that you've taken off your property in Alabama. You don't normally see whitetails like that come out of Alabama. Right. So what do you do? differently as far as your land management um you know i have uh, 70 acres a 70 acre farm here and you know i, w- I want to set up a management plan for it or i have a 160 acre farm here and i want to set up a management plan and what i would say man if i was in that situation um my strategy to anybody hunting small pieces of property even public land is shoot them if you got them. Mm-hmm. I would, uh, I, I would change my whole philosophy as far as, um, uh, what I'm trying to achieve out of a hunt. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would, I would, you know, as a bow hunter, I would, I would certainly, you know, just bow hunt and I would not get caught up in managing whitetails. I wouldn't get caught up in trying to grow a big deer. Um, it's, it's, it, it, to me, I mean, you can have the odd success, but it's an effort fertility because it, it's futile to try to manage a white, t- you know, manage and, and grow a whitetail buck when you don't control his entire home range. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. Especially if you only control 10% of his home range. Mm-hmm. So I would just say, man, I, there's so many guys that get caught up in what they see on Instagram and social media or whatever about, and, and, you know, only showing big deer. Sure. I'm guilty of it. Um, but you know, I would say just, just be happy with success. Um, you know, taking a, a, a nice buck with your, with your bow and it doesn't have to be some giant big deer. It doesn't have to be some old age class deer. Yeah. Because most of these guys that I talk to, they all have the same story. Oh man, I had this great deer on camera for two years. My neighbor killed him. Right. <laughs> well, that guy's that guy. It, w- when you kill a big deer every five or six years, the guys around you are saying the same damn thing. Yep. They're telling the same story. Oh, I've had this deer on camera. My neighbor killed him. Yep. So, I would just be happy to be out there. I'd be happy to. To, to have a good interaction with a buck and, and kill a buck and fill your freezer and manage your own expectations. Yep. Uh, and I think you, I think these guys are going to be a lot more happy uh, with, with their outcomes and, you know, and you know, you shoot a two year old eight point, you know, and, and sit down and start making excuses for why you shot him. Yeah. You know, well, last week and I needed to meet, I normally wouldn't have shot. Who cares? Yeah. There's, you shouldn't make an excuse for for arrow and something, man. Like I 100% agree with you. It's it's 
Um, no. You know, it's you, I don't know. You have to just look at what the possibility of of your property is, right? You have to have your expectations have to be in alignment with what your area is going to going to produce. And I kind of walk into every season that way, where you know I look at it and say, you know, what do I have in inventory? You know that that made it through the year. You know, from during the winter. You know, what's likely to be around next year that made it through. You know, and then I wait for my velvet pictures and I say, okay, this deer is the ra- around. Um, I know that a large percentage of those deer are going to disappear during the shift. You know what I mean? And they may, my property might be part of the range that they're going to use as the season wears on, and it might not be right. And so then I basically say, all right, there's five deer on the property that I'm willing to that I'm willing to arrow. You know, and that's kind of my criteria, right? And those are the five that I'm gonna that I'm gonna look for. Um, and they may not be the biggest deer in the world, you know, and sometimes you get lucky. You know, there was one deer on my dad's property that I had pictures of for Pennsylvania and it's, it's mountain ground. He probably went mid one thirties and that's a great, great deer for that area, you know? Um, and I was like, you know, if I see him, he's, he's going to get an arrow, but there was another one that was probably, you know, maybe just push him Pope, you know what I mean? And I was like, he's the second best deer on the property and he's around often. I was like, so if I see him, he's going to get an arrow, you know what I mean? So that way you, you know, I don't know. I think it's, there's nothing less, I shouldn't say it was less fun, but I think it's really a, a bummer when you walk onto a property, you know, public or private, whatever the case is, and you, and you kind of don't feel like you have anything to hunt. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, you should always set well, the but, expectations but you so don't you have, have something to hunt. to hunt. Yeah, well, you don't have anything to hunt because you've set uh, your expectations too high. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean... I mean, to me, when you walk on any piece of property that has whitetail on it, you have something to hunt. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you can shoot a doe, a six-point, or whatever. I mean, listen, some of these areas of the country, there are a lot of deer. You are not going to destroy the herd because you've shot a six-point, <laughs> you know, two-year-old six-point. Exactly. You know, I mean, it's it's not the end of the world. I mean... We have a, down by where I live on the Mobile Bay, down the Gulf Coast of the state, um, we have this uh, area, uh, it's a, a, you know, state public land area. It's gigantic. I think it's thirty or 40,000 acres, and it's the uh, Delta uh, Wildlife Management Area. And it's, it's basically where all the rivers converge to come into the Mobile Bay, and it's all the giant pieces of land between these rivers and it's all just booger bear bottom and swamp and mud flats and it's just the nastiest gnarliest stuff but the local people around there that like to hunt you know you can access most of it by boat they go out in you know armies of boats in the mornings and go and park their boats in these little creeks and go hunt all these wild places and you know there's guys that kill you know two or three little six points every year they're happy as a clam happy as a clam and they pull tons and tons of deer off that that property every year you're never going to manage it it's never going to be a a, you know a trophy producing area Mm -hmm. but it provides so much fun happiness for so many people i mean that is to me there's a value there and i've heard so many people say oh we should put antler restriction on the delta wildlife management area you know the lower delta or the upper delta whatever we should one section should be trophy this i'm like no there's no reason to do that Mm -hmm. it's you know that's not what it's there for so it's there for opportunity and if people would 
revel more in having opportunity than trophy, I think they would be a, 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 a you know, have a lot more fun and, and enjoy all the hard work they put into hunting. And I'm sure people listening to this are going to sit there and go, oh, well, that's easy to say. You hunt nice places and you kill big deer every year, so it's easy for you to say that. But what I would say is, is well, you know what? I might shoot a few big deer every year, but I also shoot about 30 does every year with my bow. Right. Uh, uh, I, I don't, I, I'm not above shooting a doe. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I literally probably blow a lot of opportunities at a big deer because, you know, a doe comes in, it's 18 yards. I've got my long bow. It's everything's perfect. I'm going to shoot it. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that's what I so, did. That's what I did this year during a hunt. <laughs> And a couple of does came in. I was set up on a, an area where I had some, I knew where there were some decent bucks living on this piece of public. And I, a doe family came in and I was like, she, uh, she's about 12 yards, I guess. <clears throat> and, uh, that was all she took. I got excited. I wanted to kill a deer. So I did, <laughs> you know, and that was, that was the end of that hunt. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's just as good as anything else to me. So anyway, that's, that's, uh, that's kind of my position on it. Nice. Yeah, I kind of fall in, fall in line, line with you there as far as, you know, I think people, um, you know, not to be, you know, preachy or anything, but, you know, I, I think people are better off if they enjoy the process and the experience and not the outcome. Uh, you know, I think anytime you tie your enjoyment to an outcome, you're always setting yourself up for failure, you know, because you, you, you rarely get the outcome that you that you ultimately want, right? That's just the way it is when you have – when you set goals or whatever the case is, you can work toward them or whatever, but that goal shouldn't be the end all be all of what it is you're trying to, trying to accomplish in that, you know, four months or three months, whatever it is that you're hunting for whatever game, you know, um, that's at least my position. Once I started tying, stopped tying my, uh, fulfillment to outcomes and more to the experience and the process, I became a much happier person <laughs> from my own personal experience. So, but how was your 2018 season, man? I know I saw on, uh, on social, you were out in, I think it was Texas. You got on some, uh, some Udad. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. Yeah. We, uh, I had a, I had a good year this year. I, I, um, I've hunted out West a lot, but I'd never antelope hunted, but I'd always driven through them, mm-hmm. you know, going elk or bear hunting. And so one of the things I wanted to do this year, I, I had, I'd said this every year. I'm going to go antelope hunting next year. I'm going to go antelope hunting next year. And I just never did it. So this year, um, um, I told, uh, Aaron Snyder that I wanted to hunt, hunt antelope. And he says, man, that's great. Frank drew a tag down South somewhere. I've got some property I can hunt East of, of Denver. Why don't you come out here and hunt with me? I'll have to hunt by myself. Mm-hmm. And so, I went out there and hunted, um, with him and we hunted with, uh, uh, Alex Nestor, um, Eastern Colorado outfitters or Eastern Colorado outdoor. I can't remember. Anyway, it's Alex Nestor, Alex Nestor. He's got all this, this farmland, uh, you know, ranch land east of, of, of Denver there. So we went out there and that was an incredible hunt. It's so much fun spot and stalk. Uh, hunting, um, spot and stock hunting those antelope. And I got to kill my first antelope this nice. year. Yeah. I saw that. And then, yeah, it was awesome. And then, uh, did a few mule deer hunts. Um, and that, that was, those, those were successful and fun. And then 
we hunted in um, Oklahoma for about two weeks, and uh, Aaron hunted with me there, uh, and he killed he killed two bucks, and I killed a a, a nice uh, ten point with my uh, recurve, mm-hmm. and uh, and then from there I came home, and uh, oh no, you know what? I went to Texas uh, deer hunting uh, with a friend of mine in December and saw some incredible deer. Uh, I didn't, I didn't shoot anything, uh, there except for some hogs. And I think I shot four does uh, mm-hmm. on that trip. And then, uh, then I, when I, then normally about Christmas time is when I get serious about hunting here because our rut is January, uh, February. So, right, right. uh, so anyway, I got serious about the two deer that I, wanted to hunt this year and um both of those deer basically were living together they were they were basically bedding up on the same little 40 acre section um and i got really lucky in a week apart i uh, ended up killing i ended up killing both of those bucks out of the same at the same tree (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) yeah that's a good tree yeah it was a good tree this year um, you know, I hunt out of a climbing tree stand, so I, I, most of my, uh, whitetail hunting in the South is out of a climber. I don't, I don't do a lot of permanent stands, yep. um, just so I can be mobile. Mm. Uh, and then, um, we went down to, uh, Florida and did some hog hunting down there. And that was, that was a, 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 a really good trip. And then, um, and, and then Aaron and I, we just got lucky, man. I guess it was the. Gosh, I guess it was like the last week in February, uh, uh, a gentleman had called me uh, about some arrows and we have a mutual friend, um, Brandon Hammonds, mm-hmm. uh, that does the take him outdoors podcast. Yep. Just nicest guy ever. And so we had a mutual friend started talking and he's like, he said, Hey, I'd love for you and Aaron to come out here with your trad bows and, um, uh, hunt these mule deer and whitetails I have out here. And I said, man, that is great. We'll see what we can work out for next year. And we kept talking, just nicest guy ever. And um, I said, hey, do you you don't have any audad in that country, do you? And he said, uh, yeah, I sure do. He said, would you want to hunt audad? And I said, man, it's been a dream of mine to hunt. Because I, I used to go out to West Texas a lot and mule deer hunt. Mm-hmm. And I would see them out there, and they're the most amazing animals. And he said, yeah, yeah, I've. I've I've got them. I've got some good ones. And, um, I said, uh, well, what are you doing next week? (laughs) (laughs) He said, I guess I'm on ad hunting. Right. So, uh, so literally in five days later, I was landing in, uh, Amarillo and Aaron picked me up and we went and met him and we got to this guy's house, um, Scotty Campbell. And he has a, a company called Topo Texas Outfitters, about the nicest human I've ever met. And we rode up that afternoon just to glass. And I mean, four hours for me touching down on the airplane, uh, I was at full draw on a, on a, on a sheep already. So, wow. uh, we had an incredible hunt. Uh, Aaron killed a nice, uh, sheep with his, uh, recurve. And, uh, I ended up shooting a, uh, really old ram on the last afternoon of the hunt. And, um, it was just, it was probably one of the, best hunts i've ever been on in my life wow and people sitting there going you know an audad hunt but you know these free range audad live in some of the 
gnarliest, nastiest country I've ever seen. Um, and it's so rugged and rough. It's just breathtakingly beautiful. And these animals are just, they're so amazing. Um, and it, it just, it was just a lot, a lot of fun. Now we froze our butt off. I can tell you that, yeah. um, it was six degrees one day blowing 30. And then the next day was like eight degrees blowing gust into 50. And, um, man, that wind was just, and that was cold temperatures. It was just cutting us down. And, you know, my, um, uh, like the blood vessels in my eyes or my eyes, something was going on in my eyes, but my eyes were freezing. Cause I was like, Jeez. stuck watching sheep trying to get in on sheep with the wind in my face. Right. And I guess it was, and it was snowing too, but something happened. I mean, they were, you know, like my eyes were all bloodshot and, um, it was just, I mean, you just got our butt kicked trying to get on them. It was one of the hardest hunts I've ever been, been on for sure. Wow. Those animals, they're in big groups. Um, they have incredible eyesight. Um, they incredible sense of smell. It was hard. I mean, hard, hard, hard. And, um, I would definitely do that again for sure. Yeah, nice. So with all the hunts that you've done, you know, cause you've done, of course the hunts that you just kind of talked about, I know you've hunted Africa as well in the past, you know, with all the hunts that you've done, like what's consistently been your favorite type of hunt? Um, you know, I, you know, I don't know. I, 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 it's hard for me to say, um, I, I do love, uh, uh, whitetail hunting. I, I don't know that I could ever give that up, but for me, having the ability to go, uh, out West or up North and hunt, um, hunt on my own, uh, on public land. I, I think that's the, the best experience for me. Mm -hmm. Um, just because it's so foreign, um, for, for, for me from where I'm from. Uh, public land, we do have some available. It's very, very limited, and it's very, very crowded. Um, but to be able to go out west and buy a tag over the counter and park your truck and just go hunt, it's, it's an amazing feeling. It's, it is, uh, um, I don't know, I, I guess it's just so uh, rewarding. It makes you appreciate being uh, an American, mm -hmm. uh, just to have that kind of opportunity. And I got really lucky Clint when I was, uh, I guess about 15 or 16, there was a gentleman in our church that was a youth leader, mm -hmm. uh, that was a bow hunter. And I was a fledgling floundering, uh, bow hunter at 15, 16. I'd killed a few deer, but it was tough. Right. Um, but this guy was, one of those guys, you know, I, we talked about guys that like to hunt and then a hunter, uh, and there being a difference, this guy was a hunter. Uh, he was a trapper. I mean, he just understood animal behavior. He understood, um, his wood, you know, his, his, uh, field craft. I mean, just an amazing guy. And so, uh, we got to be friends and hunted together some. And, and when I graduated high school that summer, um, or I'm sorry, that spring, spring before I graduated, he asked me, did I want to apply for an elk tag with him in New Mexico? Hmm. And, and I said, yes. And we applied and we drew, um, and we drew 16 a, which is like 
the single best field to this day, the single best unit in New Mexico in the Gila Wilderness. I mean, the draw, I don't mind saying the unit because the draw odds are astronomical, you know? Right. So, so anyway, we drove out there. And so I'm basically 18, 19 years old, uh, just graduated high school and I'm spending, you know, 21 days in the, in the Gila mountains, um, uh, elk hunting and getting exposed to this. And from there on out, I guess my favorite thing to do was always to go West and hunt public land. And that's just what I've always been drawn to do. And before I was married and had the responsibility of being a husband and a father and, you know, being responsible for others, you know, other than myself, I would, um, after that experience, uh, I went full tilt into it and I would basically, uh, put a camper shell or a topper on my truck, um, August 30th. And I would load all my crap in there and I would drive all the way to Idaho <laughs> and I would start in Idaho and go park at the trailhead, get everything packed up, sleep in the truck and then hike in. And I would hunt, you know, eight, 10 days and then come out take a much needed shower. If I had to deal with an animal, I'd deal with an animal. Um, and then I would drive, uh, Southeast and go into Colorado and hunt some over the counter, over the counter areas, uh, in Colorado. And I'd do the same thing there, seven, eight, 10 days, just depending on whatever was going on. Mm-hmm. And then I would come out and either, you know, do what I had to do. And then I would go South to New Mexico and I would hunt, you know, the, eight, 10 days there. So I, I basically would hunt the entire month of September over three states hmm. by myself, you know, on my back. Um, I, I was not hunting wilderness areas. So I wasn't hunting areas that you had to like pack in seven, eight, 10 miles. Like some of these guys do. Right. I was hunting areas that you could, you know, pack in a mile or two. Right. Um, and, and, and have really good hunting. And so I did that for a long time. And then, of course, as I got um, older and got married and started having children, that's when I started having to take guys with me. And um, that's when my success started going way down because mm-hmm. I was spending more time helping others than I was myself. And so it, I really went through a tough period there to where I was frustrated with it. And it's only because I wasn't mature enough to know that, you know, you could get as much happiness and, and value out of helping somebody else as yourself. Right. Um, I just wasn't there in my life yet. So it was very frustrating for me. Um, but you know, once I kind of got that in my head, uh, you know, hunting with others became a lot more fun and I started to appreciate it for what it was. But I mean, uh, to answer your question, man, out West public land, I don't really care what it is. Um, you know, mule deer or or coos deer or, or, elk or whatever i'm 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 all over it i love it yeah and i i i can concur there it's uh i've got the opportunity to go out west one time and it's uh ever since that one time it's like i'm itching to uh to get back i was planning to possibly go back out this year but i think i'm gonna draw uh iowa this year so i'm going to go huh. to iowa because that's you know once every four years i get to draw that so this will be the iowa year and then after that it'll be back on to you know western hunt every year is my travel hunt um and then, uh, 
you know, my plan is to just kind of hunt elk every year unless I draw an Iowa tag and then I'll hunt Iowa and then hunt elk the years in between <laughs> is kind of the, it's yeah. kind of the plan. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank Brian for joining us. Be sure to check out day6gear.com and give them a follow on Instagram. Also be on the lookout for part two of this podcast next week where we dive a little bit more into uh, what day six has going on specifically. I'd, of course, like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done that. Uh, I'd be super appreciative if you'd be able to do just those handful of things for me. Uh, And before we shut this thing down, we need to give a big shout out to our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible. Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, Ozonics, Obsession Bows, Ramcat Broadheads, Trophy Taker Rests, and Dead Down Wind. And until next time, we'll see y'all. Makes this deal, I could show you through the door, I ain't welcome anymore. If it all It takes a special No one to call a phone Damaged heads Broken letters Rationalize yourself in numbers But I Gotta get All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear. You're listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app.